This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The strategic nuclear deterrent for the United States is fundamental to our ability to secure, has been, you know, since the dawn of the nuclear age at the end of the Second World War. It's a cornerstone of how we secure Americans here at home. The president has stated the same, and he's also looking for ways to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. security. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kathleen Hicks, joined Smart Women, Smart Power to discuss current global security challenges, including China and the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. She is the first Senate-confirmed woman to serve as Deputy Secretary of Defense. This podcast episode is hosted by Nina Easton, moderator of the Smart Women, Smart Power speaker series, which is sponsored by City. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. I've had the honor of knowing Dr. Hicks for these many years, really is one of the great intellects of national security. And so thank you so much for being with us and taking the time. You know, I can imagine when you walked into the Pentagon early this year, talk about homecomings, it must have seemed a bit like a homecoming. I started adding up the number of years that you've spent inside the Pentagon from the beginning of your professional career to um, becoming Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and of course now because to and the top ranking woman at the Defense Department. Clearly, this is a much higher stakes role. Clearly, this is, um, you know, big time in so many ways and, and including the uncertainty and the difficult decisions coming your way. And I think back to, I realized you had written this dissertation um, when you were at MIT on change agents in national security policy. And I was wondering if you could just reflect as we begin our conversation on these last many months that you've been there on how to make an impact in such a large institution. And, and just just perspective for our audience and that I'll throw to you. I mean, aside from being the home of the world's most powerful military and 1.3 uh, active duty uh, military people, it's 732,000 civilian employees and a budget of seven. $120 billion. I mean, the scope of that is breathtaking. Uh, any takeaways on how to make an impact in that world? Well, first, Nina, thank you so much for hosting me. To your question, Nina, it's very humbling, of course, to be, to be here in this position. It's an incredible honor. Um, and I reflect on that for sure every day of those eight months or so that I've been here. I think uh, my strategy has always been and continues to this day to ensure that I make my time allocation that the hardest, most precious resource for anyone reflect the priorities. And the priorities have to reflect the vision and objectives from the Secretary of Defense and the President. So for me, what I've tried to do really in these eight months is make sure that I keep coming back to that touchstone of what we are seeking to achieve as an administration and ensuring that I, as the COO in that DOD setup, um, am connecting those objectives to what we are actually able to concretely move forward on and execute. 
So for me, that's really three major areas. Of course, I do many things like any executive in any uh, place, but I really focus first and foremost on um, what is it, what are the military capabilities we need, the, the forces, the resources, um, the platforms, the connectivity in order to achieve the national security objectives for the country. So that comes through a lot, of course, in development of budgets and strategy. And for me, especially, I'm focused on concepts and capabilities, which, you know, we never have enough money. You never you can't get through the challenge set of defense or national security simply by applying resources. You have to apply intellect and um, uh, be more savvy um, than your uh, potential adversary. So that's a lot about how we rapidly experiment, how we rapidly field um, the best, uh, most capable military in the world. The second area is really people. Right. Who are what's that workforce that we have to do, to execute on those objectives? And that's an area that's been uh, uh, less focused on. It's been rhetorically very important, of course, throughout the Defense Department's history. And uh, military leaders focus a lot on their people. But as you pointed out, we have not just members in uniform. We have a, a major civilian workforce, an even larger contract base and a connectivity to the innovation base of the United States. So how do we make this an attractive? place for people to come work, both directly in DOD and working with DOD. And then the third area is our business operations. How do we make sure we're as efficient and effective as possible so those taxpayer dollars are being well spent and that when we go up to Capitol Hill or out um, into the small towns of America, we can uh, uh, confidently say, credibly say, that those dollars are being um, invested to good purpose and end. That's great. And so much, so much to dig into in this next hour, um, particularly with the how to apply intellect. And we'll get into that in a, in a minute. Um, first, of course, we have to ask you about things that are, are more of a surprise and less, um, less coming out of expected plans. And of course, that's Afghanistan. We can all agree that there are a lot of surprises along the way in the last few months. And I wanted to get your personal perspective on a couple things. And the first is the, the melting away of the Afghan forces so quickly. I mean, we've heard a lot um, from your superiors about this, but I'd love to get your perspective on why that happened. I think we'll be digging in for some time on the why. Um, you know, it, 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 it's been a 20 year war. Um, it's going to take some time to understand what uh, has occurred over the course of that, let alone in the last several months. What we have seen to date in these early indications are that the Taliban had been pretty focused for some time on um, developing uh, uh, their contacts and working to uh, sideline key leaders um, in the Afghan uh, uh, community overall, but of course the security forces specifically. And that the Doha agreement from that point forward, there had been a shift in how we think at this point, how the Afghan security forces looked at the U.S. commitment and the viability of that commitment. Um, and then, of course, if you factor in President Ghani's very surprising departure, 
literally overnight from after having assured U.S. Um, officials that he was in he was in it for the long haul. I think that sort of was the 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 last point. But I I, I do think you really have to reach back further to understand the dynamics that led to where we are today. And, you know, I, I think the other question that's on the minds of a lot of Americans is why was so much U.S. military equipment from communications equipment to armored vehicles left behind? Was it, you know, you're caught by surprise as the Taliban advanced so quickly? I mean, what what was the thinking behind that? Sure. I actually think there's uh, I think that's a very easy explanation. Um, U.S. specific military equipment for the U.S. Um, we removed um, or we what we call demilitarize. We've made it inoperable. Equipment that had been the Afghan National Security Forces equipment that was provided by the United States. So here you might be thinking about ammunition or guns, more low-level um, security force uh, assistance. That was provided over, again, 20 years to the Afghan military and security forces. And that was the property of the government of Afghanistan. So that's a little separate category. I would emphasize that there is not advanced equipment in that latter category. What Americans would think of as advanced equipment is on the side of what the United States either removed or demilitarized. Um, and we have been asked by Congress for a full accounting of all of that, and, and we're very prepared to provide that. It came up just uh, earlier this week in the hearings, and I know uh, we're moving forward to provide that information. So you're not worried about sensitive um, secret technology falling into the hands of terrorists or China or Russia? I am not worried about, I believe the United States did a, uh, the U.S. military forces and um, others across government did a very good job of securing material and, to your point, communications and information uh, coming out of Afghanistan. We are going to learn more, of course, as I said, we, we don't know everything today, you know, about the course of those 20 years. So there there could be um, things we don't know today, but I am confident about uh how we have left the situation with regard to our materiel and non-materiel support. And you know, one of the most crucial decisions early on was the the closing or handover of the Bagram Air Base. Could you give some perspective on the thinking behind that? Well, there are really two points in time, I think, that are under discussion. They often get conflated. So if you think about the withdrawal of US military forces, um, uh, the uh, withdrawal from Bagram as part of that drawdown of U.S. military forces was a very sensible approach uh, to get to uh, the full withdrawal. Again, the idea was the full withdrawal of U.S. military forces um, by uh, the end of the summer, September of this year, and Bagram had to be part of that uh, uh, withdrawal uh, to secure Bagram over the long term would have been the opposite of the U.S. withdrawing forces. Then I think there is a second issue that has been uh, raised uh, by those who are concerned about the non-combatant evacuation operation that was begun in August and whether the United States should have come back in and secured Bagram as a exit point for U.S. Uh, 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 citizens and Afghans. The I think, again, the issue there is pretty self-explanatory. Bagram is far removed, relatively speaking, from Kabul. Uh, the vast majority of U.S. citizens uh, that we wanted, and of course, embassy personnel that needed to come out in that NEO, probably 70 percent 
plus. We're in the Kabul area. Hkaya is right there in the city. Um, much harder to secure for sure, but uh, logistically much easier to get uh, folks out. Of course, our neo planning did uh, have as the um, the the backdrop, not the only consideration, but as a backdrop that there would be Afghan national security forces present for that withdrawal. And of course, that is one of those pieces that changed overnight. Uh, but Bagram as an alternative, I think there'll be lots of opportunity for folks to look at that. I'm not concerned that in looking that there'll they'll actually be a lot of momentum behind the view that that was a, a viable alternative uh, for the NEO. Hmm. Okay, so enough. Um, forcing you to backseat drive. Let's move forward. Um, a lot of questions about um, the U.S. military's over-the-horizon campaign against al-Qaeda, ISIS-K, and other terrorist threats coming from Afghanistan. Um, and a bottom line, in a, from your average American, how is the military poised to protect us from terrorist attacks? I mean, can you give us some, what is that over-the-horizon strategy? Sure. So, first of all, there's a uh, um, a uh, misconception, I think, that the United States has a very specific approach to Afghanistan in what's called over the horizon than it does elsewhere in the world. And most Americans will know we don't have uh, military personnel on the ground most places in the world where we're worried about terrorism. So you can think about Yemen, you can think about areas in North Africa um, where we know Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, other groups uh, operate from ISIS. Uh, and we are not reliant largely on U.S. military personnel to execute um, counterterrorism operations there. So what we're really talking about in Afghanistan is a, is a normalizing of how the U.S. pursues its counterterrorism missions. So you could think about the U.S. Um, at, you know, at, at one extreme of what an over-the-horizon might look like. You can look at what the United States was able to execute against Osama bin Laden, which I think all Americans are quite familiar with, well, that's an over-the-horizon operation. Um, uh, so that's at one level. The other reality, though, is that most of what the United States does in counterterrorism is not at the pointy end of the, of the spear. It's about our collection capability, most of which is not necessarily even airborne assets. You could think about space assets. You can think about um, human intelligence networks, uh, particularly when you're looking at ISIS or Al-Qaeda and their attempts to be global movements, a lot of that is happening across computer networks. It's not happening, if you will, um, in cells that are meeting uh, just on the ground. And then the last thing I think I will say is just very clearly the president's goal here, very well stated already to the public, is we are not uh, we are not in a, in a place where we're trying to stop everything that happens in Afghanistan. We don't need an over-the-horizon capability that's eyes on everything happening in Afghanistan. What we're focused on with regard to Afghanistan is preventing attack, terrorist attacks that uh, are focused on U.S. citizens, um, whether there or at home and protecting ourselves from those kinds of attacks. And that's a much narrower subset of the counterterrorism threat spectrum. So um, just a, one more on that little follow-up on that. I mean, um, you know, CSIS analysts are concerned that we don't have the um, partnerships, the significant intelligence infrastructure that we have even in a, places like Syria and Iraq and Libya and even Yemen um, to, to make this 
a successful strategy. So you would say to that? Well, two things. First is uh, they have to be able to get out of Afghanistan by and large in order to affect U.S. interests. Um, so I'll, I'll just leave that there. And the second is the United States has partners throughout the world. We have a variety of approaches that we use as a national government to develop out those human networks. Um, if the focus, it sounds like the focus of that criticism is on the human networks, I would stress again, it's not the only, human networks are not the only tool, nor necessarily in many cases, the primary tool when we're looking at preventing threats to approaches here at home. Um, so we will keep working on all of those. And, you know, I don't think there's any um, attempt to take the eye off the ball of looking at violent extremist organizations and their ability to affect Americans. So it sounds like you're pretty confident. Um, you know, of course, this week we all heard from General Milley um, concerning concerned that Al Qaeda and ISIS could reconstitute uh, in Afghanistan in 2022 next year. Um, but you feel confident in our capabilities at this point to combat that? I'm, I'm uh reasonably confident that ISIS will not have any interest or capabilities to have a, a physically um, manifested threat that comes against the United States. ISIS threats emanate globally. So our biggest tool sets there are, again, things like computer network operations. Um, here at home, it's the FBI and local law enforcement working closely with federal authorities um, on the national security side. That's the ISIS challenge set. For Al-Qaeda, I think we uh, we will keep a laser focus on ensuring that they cannot undertake efforts uh, uh, to attack U.S. citizens. And, of course, holding the Taliban responsible for their agreement, which they made under Doha, to not allow any such organizations to reconstitute that would be focused, you know, uh, against our interests. That's also very important in how we proceed with uh, Afghanistan. Great. That's a good explanation. Thank you. Um, so I think the um, all the complications out of the Afghanistan withdrawal also heightened your focus there on um, data collection, um, examining data using AI-driven technologies, which you are at the forefront of, correct? Could you talk about that effort? Sure. Afghanistan, I think, was a good um, example of where having interconnectivity inside the U.S. government on data, being able to share data, uh, being able in real time to action on data, I guess is how I would put it, be, uh, was, was well displayed. Within DOD, we have been focused on this data challenge for some time. And uh, the way I would explain it, which I hope is most translatable, is um, being able to, well, there's immense amounts of information everyone knows looking at their phone every day, more information than anyone could could uh, take in reasonably. What AI can help us do is, and, and ensuring data that we can share is draw all that information in and allow decision quality approaches, pattern recognition, um, speeding and understanding of is that object that you see coming threat, not a threat, friend or foe. That's a lot of the promise of being able to access all the data and then through AI and machine learning be able to analyze all that data. So it's really about decision advantage um, and speed of decision advantage. So we're very focused on that as a, a way in which the U.S. military 
can contribute to deterrence, to create stability, to be able to see, for example, as I use the friend or foe um, example, prevent escalation, um, but also to be able to demonstrate to adversaries, potential adversaries, that we are prepared to respond swiftly where we do see threats. So it's interesting, a lot of, uh, in corporate America, there's a lot of focus on, among particularly more visionary companies, a lot of focus on reading the future versus just um, drawing on the past and uh, using AI. And it sounds like you are doing that um, very much. And you, what are the five data decrees that you <laughs> shoot? Yeah, in some, the, uh, without walking through them, in some, the idea here is that our data has to be um, at a certain standard, we have to be able to share it. It needs to be transparent what's in that data. And again, if you take the data decrees and the responsible AI um, principles together, I think you start to get a sense of how we're trying to build out the this is just the foundation on which we will build capability to ensure that data that comes in is structured in such a way that it can be shared. Uh, we all understand what the data is trying to, you know, it's translatable. And again, that it can plug, you know, think mechanically it can plug, you know, the pipes can plug across systems and the data can flow through it. Um, and then on the AI side, that we have responsible approaches that we're the, the leader, which I think we are, frankly, um, the even industry, ahead of industry in terms of the principled approach to how we think about applying AI and machine learning in ethical ways so that we can then take that data and use it for the security of the United States. Great. So um, a couple more um uh, Afghan Afghanistan questions, and then we'll move on. But how concerned are you about U.S. trained Afghan pilots, personnel, and aircraft being held in Tajikistan? And what steps are being taken to ensure that they're not returned to the Taliban? Yeah, I'm not going to comment on the latter half. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of concern to ensure that those Afghan um, pilots are are safe, that their families are safe, and there's ongoing um, efforts uh, that the State Department's leading in that space. And another question, um, and this I'm going to wrap in a, an audience um, member question with this. Um, how is the DOD continuing to work with partners and allies to evacuate people from Afghanistan? And Dr. Gail Nelson asks, what's the status of U.S. plans for rescuing high-risk Afghans, including former defense ministry and general staff officials from Kabul? What is the status of special immigrant visas? Let me pick pieces of this, a lot in there. Um, the uh, ongoing evacuation of American citizens, that is uh, absolutely the case you see even since we've departed from it, US, the U.S. military securing of HKIA. You've seen a number of U.S. citizens and green card holders, um, um, those with documentation and Afghans at risk departing um, Afghanistan. That is uh, through the extremely good work of the U.S. State Department-led uh, efforts. They are using U.S. military facilities, uh, for instance, in the Middle East and in Europe to help facilitate the flow of those folks. But DOD is really just in support in that case. And what you're seeing, again, is more of a an, uh, an ability both to bring folks through the State Department uh, process for um, providing documentation, securing, ensuring that the documentation is accurate. You have a DHS-led process on vetting 
um, and review to ensure that the right people are coming out. Um, and then DOD is providing some of the, the backdrop. We're not the ones lifting out. The other major um, thing I would flag is the uh, standing up of the commercial side of the Kabul airport. And that's an effort underway that third countries are working on with the State Department to try to get that airport up and operational. And that, again, if you combine the ability for commercial aircraft to come through um, and move without coming to U.S. military facilities, for instance, just going through commercial air traffic and the ability of the State Department to provide continuing um, support for um, the visa process and for the um, you know validation of those who are in U.S. passport, that all becomes, uh, uh, you can see already, you're starting to see the ability of that process to work without the U.S. having, if you will, boots on the ground or even lift involved directly in um, that process. Great. Um, okay, we'll leave Afghanistan now. <laughs> what? Uh, let's talk about very broadly. What's your personal role in nuclear modernization at at the Pentagon? Sure. Well, as I said before, you know, the, as as the COO, it's really about connecting the objectives to the uh, resources. And in the case of nuclear modernization, those resources take the form of our nuclear command and control enterprise, the the cyber and space related aspects of the security of our uh, nuclear strategic nuclear deterrent, and then um, what are those actual uh, programs that we have for nuclear deterrence. Um, so in that regard, uh, I am assisting the secretary. And again, the president has a nuclear uh, posture review underway now that's up at the White House level. Um, so I'm assisting the secretary in looking at that, particularly that back end piece of with nuclear policy being made from the White House, what are the implications of that policy for how we bring forward the capabilities uh, in support? Um, so I look at that through a number of different mechanisms. The budget is the one most people are used to, but I assure you there's no shortage of uh, meeting types uh, in which we talk through many of the nuclear modernization challenges uh, that we face. And, it, and, you know, I think the key takeaway really is that the strategic nuclear deterrent for the United States is fundamental to our ability to secure, has been, you know, since uh, the dawn of the nuclear age at the end of the Second World War. Um, it's a cornerstone of how we secure um, Americans here at home. The president has stated the same, and he's also looking for ways to reduce the role of nuclear weapons um, in U.S. security. So we're working in support of those goals. And what about space defense? Um, can you kind of give us an overview of where efforts are going on that realm of moving into 2022 and beyond? Sure. So I'm sure folks will be familiar that we've stood up a Space Force. Um, uh, it was stood up under the last administration, so it's often affiliated or people think of it as uh, aligned to, if you will, an administration. But I think it's important for people to know that there was a strong congressional bipartisan um, viewpoint to bring forth uh, the Space Force. So that bipartisan uh, viewpoint on Capitol Hill continues. And so we are continuing, of course, to build out the um, the shaping of that space force and its capabilities. Again, like I said on nuclear issues, that is in support of an overall um, White House driven, presidentially driven um, perspective on how we think about space 
uh, how about civil uses of space? Uh, the vice president's very engaged um, in this space. Sorry for that. Uh, and also, what are the military um, contributions to defense of space or what we often call space resiliency? So uh, we have a lot of commercial capability here in the United States, a lot of innovators in, in the space sector that put us at an advantage over our um, uh, competitors, the Russians and the Chinas of the world, who are also doing a lot in space. And a lot of where we're trying to go in terms of space defense is working closely with those partners um, on the civilian side, the commercial side, while retaining some very unique, uh, specific um, and high quality capabilities within the US government, making sure we're focused on keeping our edge there to defend the United States. And let's um, come back to Earth and, and focus on the Pacific now. Um, uh, President uh, Biden, of course, announced the Australia-UK-US um, deal, which included um, sharing US nuclear-powered uh, submarine technology. Uh, can you describe how this fits into the overall military strategy and, and China's strategy? Sure. So AUKUS, as it's called, the the, the um, agreement that you're referencing with the UK and Australia, does include uh, a consultation effort on nuclear um, propulsion. It's not for, I uh, uh, rush to add, it is not to provide Australia with the capability to launch nuclear weapons, um, which is also not in the interest, uh, the Australians least of all are not interested in that. It's about um, helping them consider uh, uh, what the approach would be, what efforts they would have to undertake in order to establish a nuclear propulsion capability inside Australia. So the United States and the UK cooperate very closely on that issue set. This brings the Australians into a consultative mechanism to start working through what that might look like. So it's an 18-month consultation period. Um, and also there are some other areas that are uh, the president announced, quantum computing, cyber, a couple other areas um, that will be working in this trilateral format of AUKUS uh, to look at how we can advance capabilities together. So there are a lot of reasons why that's helpful to Australia itself in terms of its defense. Nuclear propulsion allows them to think about how they stay under sea longer and more quietly, less detectable. That's the advantage of the nuclear propulsion. Um, why is that advantageous to us and what in the in the context of China, which is how you raise the question? Um, the Chinese are um, advancing their capabilities at a remarkable clip. Um, those capabilities include, of course, undersea capabilities, but but even beyond what they're doing in the undersea, it's a very clear pattern of expanding out the geographic capability, the the, the range of their capability to deny uh, other interested parties, um, whether that's around Japan, whether that's around, in the case of the United States, Guam, or even Hawaii. And if you're Australia, it includes, of course, spanning out now, getting closer to Australia, uh, the ability to threaten their interests. So the fact that the United States and the UK and Australia are coming together around this issue set, I think just demonstrates how the opinions in the region, in the Western Pacific are shifting, and honestly in Europe, how the uh, positions are shifting uh, with regard to how serious this Chinese challenge is. And the rhetoric of uh, President Xi is as aggressive, frankly, as his actual capabilities. So in past years, we might've said, 
we see their capability growth. We're not sure what their intentions are. Now they're being pretty clear about their intentions and we're seeing their capability growth. And I think the the lights are going on um, in many places. And I think one of those places is Australia. How worried are you? And and what do you mean by China as a pacing competitor? Sure. Use that term. Yeah, sure. I am worried. I think uh, the United States and China and the globe have a significant interest in maintaining peace and stability in um, the Western Pacific and throughout the world. And it takes a very careful approach to, given what I've described as the rhetoric and the capabilities, um, to um, make clear that we can credibly deter any such efforts against our interests. I mentioned Japan, a treaty ally. I've mentioned US territory, even a state in the United States of America includes Hawaii. Uh, so mm -hmm. we have real reason for concern ourselves, let alone those treaty commitments we have, the Philippines and others. Um, what do I mean by a pacing threat? It's that the is that they are um, developing capabilities in certain areas uh, that are uh, beginning to compete very effectively with what the U.S. could bring to bear to defend those interests. And so we now look increasingly at where China is going in certain capability areas as, as the bar, the mark on the wall that we need to ensure we can credibly deter against. That doesn't mean necessarily that we're doing an arms race in, in any particular area. It just means that that mark on a wall is something we have to be able to credibly overcome with our own capabilities. And by the way, the U.S. has a huge advantage in that those capabilities are not just ours, back to AUKUS. They're about what the U.S. can bring as a global power and with a lot of other countries who are now increasingly concerned about what China's trying to do. Our goal is not to have any conflict, armed conflict uh, with China. It is to reduce tension and demonstrate a credible deterrent so they are not tempted with this rhetoric and this capability to overreach. So on the same program just a few weeks ago, I interviewed Senator Duckworth and I encourage our audience to watch it. She went into a lot of this um, military and intelligence strategy in exactly what we're talking about. And one of the things that she raised concerns about was a potential invasion of Taiwan, particularly given the um, chip technology there. How concerned are you? It's something we watch very carefully. Um, uh, it, if you're out at the Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii, you're, you're watching it day to day. We have a significant amount of capability forward in the region um, to tamp down any such um, potential. Uh, we have good relations, of course, with Taiwan. We have commitments to Taiwan um, that are enduring since the 1970s. Um, and central to that is helping the Taiwanese with their self-defense capabilities. That's really important. The Taiwanese, their ability to defend themselves effectively is a game changer in terms of that deterrent calculus for China. And so that's an area we want to have a lot of focus on. Um, as well as our own, and as I said before, with allies and partners, our own credible demonstration of interest in, a, a, frankly, a democracy um, uh, with an advanced economic, and uh, to your point on the chips, um, semiconductor industry, there's, there's a, there's, yes, that's, that's sort of a business case, if you will, but also the Taiwanese people um, have demonstrated an ability to have a democracy. And we have an interest in ensuring democracies can flourish. 
primarily that's expressed through the self-defense of Taiwan, um, but the United States works closely with partners throughout the world on that. So, Kath, we have a whole rash of um, uh, audience questions to ask you, and we haven't even talked about you. Um, your dad was a rear admiral. Um, tell us about him, his work, and his influence on you. Oh, my gosh, that's so nice. No one's ever asked me that question. Let's see. My uh, Yes, my dad uh, was a submariner, speaking of submarines, uh, and uh, uh, spent more than 30 years in the United States Navy. I grew up um, uh, across the U.S. Uh, on the coast. In Hawaii. Hawaii. Right? Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, never expected myself to be working in the Defense Department. Uh, but of course, if you if you sort of take the long view, you can sort of see how it all played out. Um, but a tremendous influence and incredible focus on public service, both him and my mother, um, who was very focused on military families, did a ton as a psychologist and did a ton of uh, work um, as a counselor and psychologist with military families. And we had one of those dinner tables. Uh, I have a very large family. I'm the youngest of seven children. So we had one of those dinner tables where the conversations were always ar around a current events, news of the day, and a strong focus on education and um, and service to others. And uh, that's an, an enduring influence that I hope I can pass on, not just to my own children, but to those I work with. And what drew you to the Pentagon yeah, early I, on? You were clearly, I mean, you, you, had, yeah. uh, you went through your PhD at, at MIT, but you started early on um, at the Pentagon. I did. I actually I went uh, back to MIT for my PhD while a Pentagon employee. So I actually went to the Pentagon first after my master's degree. And um, coming out of college, I was sort of trying to decide between did I want to go be a history professor or did I want to go do something more in the public realm? And I had, you know, strong mentors in college who helped me think through that challenge that I decided to go on to the public policy route into public policy schools. And I think I was just really drawn to foreign policy, foreign affairs overall throughout my college years. I came out of college at the time that the Berlin Wall came down at the time the Soviet Union dissolved. Um, those were, it was fascinating that the sort of the hope of a new uh, approach for the United States, a new generation. Um, and so it was very natural for me to look at the national security realm and public service for all the reasons I've just described. The Defense Department had uh, then and now a particularly compelling program. It's called, uh, was called at the time the Presidential Management Internship now called the Presidential Management Fellows Program. And DOD was well known to have one of the best programs. I hope that's still true today, uh, People that people view it that way today. You had a lot of opportunity to move around, try different things, essentially a two-year training program. And uh, to be able to join the civil service and be uh, used really well to no matter what level you were, the reputation was, you could be brought in and just do great work. Um, and that's how I came into DOD. And honestly, as a career civil servant for those first 13 years, that's what I found at DOD. I found, you know, even though I was young and female and had did not come myself with an operational background, meaning I had not served in the military, there was a lot to overcome. I'm not going to I'm not going to whitewash that. But uh, but, you know, if you could demonstrate your merit, if you could show you could do good work, chances were people were, they needed your good work. And so you could do really interesting things in advance. And that's what brought me to DOD and kept me here for so long. 
So it was it was it wasn't easy being a, a civilian moving no. up. Can you describe <laughs> like in just a couple sentences? <laughs> Sure. I think they're uh, most of the uniform members who are here in the building, they're coming either at a capstone or very late um, in there when they're coming here to work on substantive issues. They're coming here, let's just say, as a colonel or a Navy captain level or maybe just slightly under that. If you're starting here as I did at 23 with no operational background and you're coming into the office of the Secretary of Defense and you're there to, you know, hold forth and provide guidance. My very first job was developing guidance for the secretary to sign in a variety of different very operational areas. Um, you can imagine that's pretty off-putting for people. And uh, what I found worked best, again, I'd certainly had my challenges over the years, but what I found worked best was really always being clear that you respect the operational insight um, that those in uniform were bringing, but that you brought something to the table and that you had been brought on as a career civilian, in my case, uh, with a very sp a specific set of expertise and knowledge. And that over the years, that knowledge base only grows relative to those who are rotating in and out of the Pentagon. You really have that institutional understanding of how Washington works, how the interagency works, how to work with Congress, how to develop in the case of a place like the Office of the Secretary of Defense, guidance that sticks, um, what are the incentives organizationally. Those who are out in the field, they have tremendous knowledge sets that I will not have, but I have something they need too. And I think when you can come forward on a very frank basis about that, very professional basis, most of the time with most of the people, um, that will work relatively well. Those are really wise words, especially to young people coming up the ladder. And I wanted to ask you, you like smart women, smart power. Um, we're all champions and supporters of women in national security. Do you see the women if the same way that you were shaped by the era of the fall of the Berlin Wall and that optimism? Do you see um, young women today um, going into national security shaped by something different? I think I mean, obviously it's something different, but what are they shaped by? Sure. Yeah. First, I think we had a significant influx of young professionals after 9-11. That happened in the military services and also happened on the national security civilian side. So that's that's now a full generation, 20 years later, that's a full generation past. Including my son going into the army. Yes. There you go. 11 baby, yeah. Yeah. Now, I think what we see are um, people who are looking at a globalized world. This is what I see in the young people coming in. They're looking at... Um, national security tied very much to how we think about our security here at home. And by that, I mean, they're thinking about what does the United States, how does the United States strengthen itself from within? They look very much at how uh, the United, what the, the work is that the United States needs to do in order to be a credible, you know, beacon of freedom, if you will, in the way that we would have thought of it in 1989 or 1990. Uh, they're very focused on how to weave the story of America really at home and abroad together. Um, that's what I see. And they're much more diverse. I think we have a long way to go, but much more diverse than we used to be. Um, and, and it is true that we see many more women than we used to. Boy, that's, that's, I just love that, um, that imagery, like living out the American story uh, around the world through national security. That's very powerful. Um, okay, we're going to go to audience questions. I apologize to all of you. There's a lot of them, so I'll try to get through as many as I can. Um, 
Tyler asks, how does DOD foresee overcoming the current domestic political climate in order to obtain the next generation of warfighters that are not only technologically savvy to meet the future needs of warfighting, but also adhere to larger diversity, equity, and inclusion goals? That's a lot. Um, yep. Go ahead. Okay. Um, that ties very much to, I think, what we were just talking about. Um, this is a straight up business case issue. There is a lot of politics in Washington and on cable news. And, you know, my job is the business case. And the business case is this. Any organization, corporation, university that wants to compete effectively in the 21st century has got to get the formula right on tapping into the immense talent base here in the United States huge advantage over the Chinas of the world, if you will, and their status approaches is the innovation that we can bring forward. And I don't just mean technology, I mean creative thinking that goes after practical problems and brings new ideas. That requires us to tap that talent base. And that talent base is increasingly diverse in all its in all its measures. Um, so that means not only can you recruit effectively against um, you know, that full talent base, but can you retain, attract and retain? And a lot of that is, are you a workplace that people want to come to? Can you make a compelling case for mission? So, you know, in, in many generations in the past, the mission, if you will, was enough. Uh, it was very clear what the United States military offered in terms of the ability to, again, defend uh, the United States itself, uh, sort of a, a recognized uh, um, a goal to pursue. Now, I think we have a lot of work to do to make that case that we're, that's credible, which is the military is a place where you can be safe from sexual harassment or assault, that you are um, going to be, uh, you, there's a social contract all the way through your veteran years with regard to your mental health, to your physical health, to your family, um, that we are bringing in those most innovative and technologically advanced, and we're not going to we're not going to completely consume you or, or bring you down with bureaucracy. These are all major challenges to attracting the kind of talent we need for the future. And they are at the heart of when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's really more than anything else. It's about making sure we bring the right people in. We let them advance through our system. We demonstrate that you can make it to the top of our system and throughout our ranks, not just in a token way, but in an enduring way so that we um, are a place people want to come to, they give their best while they're here, and we take care of them on the other end. Keishla from Global Bridge Health Strategy asks, um, how is the department measuring the risk that climate change places on operations, particularly um, interested in current impacts on operations and long-term resiliency of force re readiness? Okay. So, um, I always like to start this back in 2008, again, an issue that's uh, been over-politicized in recent years. Back in 2008, the National Intelligence um, Council put out an agreed um, IC, Intelligence Community Assessment, that climate change was a national security risk. The intelligence community and the Department of Defense, including on the uniform side, has never wavered from that viewpoint. So there's no question over more than a decade that we have a national security risk from climate change. It comes about in a number of ways. It comes about because 
again, back to just dollars and cents, our installations, our facilities, our operations. So for instance, our use of fuels, um, our ability to maintain our equipment, which is using um, uh, capabilities that not only do they happen to be climate challenged, but they are uh, decreasingly of use in the commercial sector. So paying to upkeep them takes more money. There's a lot of dollars invested just in staying static where we are because when we don't take it uh, into account climate implications. The readiness issue is similarly. Uh, we have days we can't fly our aircraft because there is increasing wildfires. You know, these numbers are going up. So you can look at wildfires, you can look at drought, you can look at sea level rise, all of these aspects that affect our readiness. And then there's the fact that military forces, especially our National Guard forces, get called up more and more frequently to deal with climate-related instances of uh, adverse weather, hurricanes, wildfires again, um, and in international crises. So you can think back to the tsunami, for instance, um, uh, in Asia, where US military forces are called on more. All of these are ways that climate change is manifesting as increased demand on and uh, requirements for dollars from DOD. So we have a big interest in going after it. What are we doing about it? First, we're getting a better uh, approach inside our own budgeting process for how we account for what we're already doing on climate. There's it's not a good accounting today. It is my expectation in the fiscal year 23 budget that we put forward in the spring next year, we'll have a much better handle of what DOD does with regard to climate today. Second, we are very much focused on um, making sure that our uh, we're taking advantage of green technology. Again, most of it not exotic, most of it well used in the um, commercial sector. So you can think about electric, small things like electric vehicle fleets. We rent a lot of cars in the US <laughs> Department of Defense. A lot of those cars are now electric. Do we have charging stations for those cars? If we're buying vehicle fleets for your, you know, your typical run around the base kind of operations that we use our vehicle fleets for, um, should those be electric? That's, that's, that's one of those examples that's small, but I think most people can connect with as just sensible ways to spend our dollars. And then I'll just finish with this. There's I could talk climate all day, as you can tell. I'll finish by saying um, we have a climate risk assessment tool now that we are using. We have deployed secretaries directed across the department for all facilities and installations. So we can actually have some data and analysis to show us where we have the greatest climate um, change risks sea level rise is a good example, um, and how we can prioritize our dollars in order to mitigate those challenges. Great. So Dave Town wanted, uh, offers a follow up to um, the uh, your answer on what we left behind militarily in Afghanistan, that we didn't leave sensitive high-end military equipment. And he says, could you please clarify your equipment, specifically the Taliban, could you please clarify your statement? Um, specifically, the Taliban flew a U.S. Uh, Black Hawk helicopter during its victory parade in Kabul. Do you consider Black Hawk helicopters to be high-end or low-end in military equipment? Um, how many other military aircraft were provided to the ASF or otherwise left behind in Afghanistan? I do not have any... Um I've never heard that the uh, that the Taliban flew a Black Hawk. I, I could be wrong. I have not heard that before. Okay. Um, 
Catherine from DIU asks, how are you? Can I just add one thing to that, oh, which is you also then need to be able to fuel and maintain a Blackhawk. Even if you flew it once, you need you need to be able to maintain it over time. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Yukari from Albright Stone Bridge Group asks, Japan's new ruling Liberal Democratic Party president um, was selected on the 29th. How do you plan to promote your policy toward China and the Quad with Kishida and Japan together? No, I'm, uh, I'm, I think what I would answer that with is we have a, a very enduring and durable um, alliance with Japan. And we are, you know, both on both sides, quite used to shifts of power um, inside our democratic processes. And it, we fully anticipate having a very positive relationship, including through the Quad, which the Quad references Japan, the United States, India, and Australia, but also bilaterally and in other venues with the Japanese. So I, I think we're, we feel very confident in that. Okay, we've got four minutes left, and um, this is a perfect note to end it on. Katina from Georgetown said, you've broken a lot of glass ceilings in the DOD world and national security spaces. Congratulations to you, Dr. Hicks. Um, women voices and skills will be critical in resolving our future challenges. Um, she asks, are, is DOD doing enough to encourage and promote female leaders? I'm going to take that a little bit differently. What would you say, what's your piece of advice to women who want to follow in your footpath? I think my piece of advice is expect challenges and be passionate about the work you want to do. It's the passion you're going to need when you have the challenges. And, you know, you have to be able to step forward confidently and uh, be ready to demonstrate that you bring value. And uh, if you're confident you bring value and you present that forward to the world, Again, there's always going to be challenges, but the, I think you can, you can, with a passion to do what you want to do, you can go pretty far. Great. Any final thoughts, Dr. Hicks, as we close? No, thanks, Nina. It's been a pleasure. Great. It's wonderful to have you. You've been so insightful. We've learned a lot. Um, thank you for your patience, for your deep analysis, and always your great intellect. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.